elevate your summer with Osea's best-selling body care set. It's everything you need for radiant summer skin on the go. Featuring travel sizes of Osea's clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral skincare, like their best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Right now, you can get the best-seller's body care set, a $78 value, 33% off. And use code SUMMER to save an additional 10%. That's an additional 10% off at OCEAMalibu.com, code SUMMER. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, China's President Xi Jinping is in Moscow this week in a three-day visit with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Many believe the intention of the visit would be to begin peace discussions with Ukraine. Xi Jinping is expected to present an agreement on economic cooperation between the two countries worth billions of dollars. Xi's visit comes just days after the International Criminal Court accused Putin of war crimes on Friday. They allege Putin was complicit in the forced deportation of Ukrainian children from Russian-occupied areas of Ukraine. Here to talk about the Putin-Xi meeting and Xi's long-term plans, I'm really pleased to welcome back two guests. George Beebe, Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, and Weifeng Zhang, Senior Research Fellow at George Mason University's Mercatus Center. Listen, I want to thank both of you for joining me again. You're both so knowledgeable about this area. It's going to be very, very helpful. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, I want to start with something that precedes the visit to Russia, and that is there were reports that there were four different speeches last week in which Secretary General Xi Jinping talked about the need to prepare for war. Is this just an effort to sort of get the PLA mobilized or... In your sense, does he really sense that things are that dangerous and he really wants the country to understand how close they are to be engaged in combat? I'll let you two decide who would like to jump in first. 
I had an ongoing machine learning project that the policy change index that tries to gauge what Beijing is going to do based on what it's printing on its national newspaper. And what we detected about two years ago was already the effort to talk up the Chinese military has already started. And it's never really clear what the target is because the people's data is unlikely to spell it out on the page. But it's possible that Beijing is thinking more about Taiwan than really participating in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And so I don't see that as very surprising that Xi Jinping would you know, talk up the military again, which is something he has done in the last few years. I think it would be a little bit of a leap to interpret that as China's intention to more actively help the Russian invasion. I would agree on that. I think right now China has some very serious disincentives to involving itself directly in military support of Russia. For one thing, it would completely alienate Europe. And the Europeans remain a very important economic trade partner with China. And in a time of growing economic uncertainty in the world and in China itself, I think that's probably the last thing that Xi Jinping needs is some sort of economic crisis with Europe. And it would certainly accelerate the trade sanctions that the United States has put in place itself with China. That's not a good thing from China's point of view either. So I don't expect that the Chinese are going to intervene militarily in the war anytime soon. Now, if Russia looked to be in danger of actually losing the war, that's a different matter. And I think the Chinese might approach the decision differently in that context. But we're not there yet. And I don't think there's any reason that the Chinese believe that the Russians are close to losing. I hadn't realized that Xi and Putin have met 40 times since Xi became the leader of China in 2012. I think almost no Americans realize how constantly these two have been communicating. And as you may remember, one of Henry Kissinger's ground rules was to always keep China and Russia separate and to find some way that we could triangulate. And it seems to me that that is now totally out the window. How do you two react to the whole notion that the relationship there apparently is much closer than we think it is? I've been following the Russia-China relationship since the breakup of the Soviet Union, back when Yeltsin was the president of Russia. And the conventional wisdom in Washington all that time has been there are serious impediments to close Russian-Chinese relationship. There's a lot of mistrust, a lot of suspicion, a lot of things that prevent them from really getting close with one another. And that has been our mantra year after year after year, decade after decade. And during this period, they both have announced goals for their relationship, new levels of bilateral trade, deeper support, deeper military cooperation. And each time they've announced these ambitions, the Washington response has been, yeah, well, you know, that's completely unrealistic. And you look back from the vantage point of today at what has happened, and Russia and China have actually met all of these objectives that they've said they're going to achieve in their bilateral relationship. They've gone much farther and much faster than any of the experts really anticipated here. Now, are we at a full-blown military alliance? No. 
I actually don't believe that either country actually wants a treaty commitment to defend each other. But I think we're in a situation where, in fact, Russia and China have a much deeper partnership with much greater geostrategic significance than anybody expected even 10 years ago. And that is a failure in my book of U.S. geostrategy. Henry Kissinger was right. Richard Nixon was right. The United States ought to have better relations with Beijing and with Moscow individually than they have with each other. But in fact, what we've done is we've bumbled into a situation where we have incentivized greater cooperation between Russia and China against us, against the United States, than would have happened, I believe, if we had taken a different tack toward both countries. So I think we really need to rethink how we're approaching this. I agree with what George said. I would also add to that, I mean, part of it is to be expected in the sense that as the United States works more closely with our allies, right? What do we expect that China would, would naturally work more closely with Russia? I would also caution that some of these close relationships that we see might be really just for show for the domestic audience in the sense that if you think about how the Communist Party justifies its dictatorship at home, it always tries to prop up the image of fellow dictatorships. So Russia, if you look at how it's talked about in the People's Daily, even when the relationship was not as good, you wouldn't be able to tell from the newspaper. It's always very nice. And when another fellow dictatorship, non-democracy at least, is doing very well, China would try to talk it up very much. And the example for that is Singapore, right? So when Lee Kuan Yew was saying something along the line of Asian values, democracy doesn't work for us, and Beijing just took it and run with it because it's a great talking point, right? Democracy doesn't work for us. And look at how well-performing this Singaporean economy is. So from there, you can see it's impossible to conceive a scenario where Xi Jinping and Putin don't think about each other as close friends, at least in the public image for photo ops. I think we should sort of tone our enthusiasm on that front too in terms of interpreting how close they really are. Well, if you take Russia's extraordinary scale geographically and their raw materials and you take the size and momentum of the Chinese economy and Chinese technological prowess, in some ways they're kind of perfectly matched to be much more powerful together than either one of them is by themselves. I would also say China now is much more capable of helping Russia but the opportunity cost, if we think about possible Western sanctions, right, it's also much higher. Now, it's a matter of whether we can actually exert the deterrence, for example, laying out what the consequences will be if China actually actively engages in helping Russia. I don't think we have such an on-ramp, so to speak, for Xi Jinping yet. People like to talk about off-ramp for Putin. I think we should lay it out more clearly the on-ramp so that Xi Jinping would not be interested in entertaining taking it. From an American standpoint, is it more important for us to find a way to relate to China or to relate to Russia? Let me take a stab at that. I think that China is by far the more significant challenge for the United States geopolitically. We've not actually had a peer competitor in our history. The Soviet Union was a peer military rival. To some degree, you could argue that it might have been a peer ideological rival, but it was an economic dwarf 
during its history. It was largely cut off from the world and not very interested in integrating into the world economy. It was nowhere close to an economy that could rival the United States. So in that sense, it was a very imbalanced strategic competition between the Soviet Union and United States. That's not the case with China. China is a peer competitor of the United States economically and is, I think, very close to being a peer competitor militarily. And unfortunately, I think what's happening is that China is beginning to be a peer competitor when it comes to its diplomatic actions around the world, in part because the United States has left a diplomatic vacuum into which China could insert itself. And I think that's a mistake, frankly. But the United States has not had to deal with a peer competitor before. It's not just a matter of outbuilding the Chinese military. And outcompeting the Chinese economically is going to be a complicated thing because of the degree to which our economies are integrated with one another. Supply chains are integrated. There's a mutual dependency there that complicates how we can deal with the Chinese economically. So is it more important for us to deal with China than with Russia? Absolutely it is. Russia is nowhere near a peer in any of these categories. That said, China and Russia together are far more formidable as a geostrategic rival than either one of them is separately. So one thing I would say for sure is that it's not in the American interest to perversely incentivize Russia and China to work together against us. Now, are they going to work together to some degree anyways? Yes, absolutely. They both have mutual interests and cooperation. What we ought to make sure of, though, is that that cooperation is not directed against the United States to the degree that we can avoid that, because that's what really threatens us. But given Putin's deep belief that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest tragedy of the 20th century, and his background in the KGB, isn't it almost inevitable that Russia will work against us, much more so than China will? Well, I don't think that's true. Well, at least it didn't have to be true. It's debatable whether we've reached the point where it has become inevitable now because of the way the United States has mishandled things and because of the dynamic that has developed inside Russia itself. But recall that when Putin first became president, he actually proposed a deep strategic partnership with the United States. He proposed that Russia should join NATO. He actually did an awful lot to advance U.S.-Russian cooperation. He withdrew from Cameron Bay, the naval base in Vietnam that the United States had built in the Vietnam War era. He dismantled Russia's intelligence collection facilities in Cuba to send us a very clear signal about what he wanted in terms of cooperation with the United States. He provided us intelligence in Afghanistan that greatly helped our post 9-11 efforts to try to deal with the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Now, that changed over time, but it changed in part because Putin developed the belief, and it was not an entirely unfounded belief, that the United States actually didn't want a partnership, that we wanted to turn Russia into a subordinate in ways that were threatening to 
Putin's belief of Russia's internal stability and the role it ought to be playing in the world. So his views of the United States transformed quite radically from potential partner to a deadly enemy. Now, part of that was Russia's fault, but part of it was ours too. So I don't think that it was inevitable where we wound up here. Wayfan, how do you see it? I see a similar trend, surprisingly, to what George was saying, but in China as well, in the sense that China was much more open to cooperation with the West, some form of partnership, engagement with the West, say up to mid-2000s than it is now. And the idea, if we think of Deng Xiaoping's diplomatic strategy, right, is to lay low, you know, to develop. And the reason was because there was much more was at stake in terms of the potential to grow the economy. Not so much anymore, right? If you look at how, just even look at how China's attitude toward Hong Kong was. When Jiang Zemin, you know, went to Hong Kong to visit Hong Kong when he was the former president, when he was the president of China, he went to the residence of Li Ka-shing, the richest businessman in Hong Kong, to have breakfast with him. And Xi Jinping doesn't even bother to go to Hong Kong these days. And that's all a consequence of the rising Chinese economy because Hong Kong used to be about 20% of the entire Chinese economy. Right Now it's a dispensable part of the entire thing, which also suggests that China now is abandoning the kind of engagement foreign policy and pursuing, and in turn, rather to pursue some more aggressive posture. And so even if you look at China, it has a similar evolution, whether it's really interpreting the United States as being less and less friendly toward China, it seems to be that way. But even internally, from an internal calculation standpoint, Beijing is more willing to be more aggressive now on the international stage than it used to be. Is that also a reflection of the degree to which Xi Jinping has centralized power, really to a degree that almost rivals Mao, compared to the people who were presiding over the party in the intervening 30 years? It seems to me that there's been a real tightening up of the totalitarian state. Does that seem accurate or is that exaggerated? Absolutely. It's not only politically, even economically, China is centralizing because, say, if you think of the actual power of the premier of the Chinese government, legally speaking, that's the head of the Chinese government, not the Chinese president. But these days, the prime minister doesn't really have a say on a lot of economic issues. And another example I would give is if you look at the reasons really driving the Chinese economy to grow was the incentive local governments have had, right? They had been for many years very passionate about selling land to the private sector because they made a lot of money from that, right? But now even that incentive was taken away and centralized to Beijing. So if you think about economic aspects, the fatal conceit, so to speak, is very obvious in Xi Jinping. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. A couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. 
On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, this idea of what, do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This International Criminal Court deciding that they're going to go after Putin, isn't that almost an act of insanity? <laughs> How can the court believe that it has any possibility of doing anything with the head of the Russian government? <laughs> well, you know, from a practical standpoint, I think you're absolutely right. There's really no hope that Putin is going to wind up in handcuffs standing before a judge at the International Criminal Court. The only way that could happen is if not only Russia is defeated militarily in Ukraine, but also occupied militarily in some way so that the occupiers would actually take him into custody and haul him off to the Netherlands. Or alternatively, if some group in Russia that is very pro-Western actually deposes him and takes power. And the likelihood of that happening is quite small, not impossible, but very remote at this point. So the notion that Putin is going to find himself on trial for war crimes is far-fetched. That said, I think that what's going on here is there's a belief on the part of many in the West, including those in the ICC, that moral authority matters a lot here. 
and that we can wield that as a weapon to constrain, if not deter, Putin from doing things that we find objectionable. I think that that is a fanciful notion. This is a court, by the way, which has 123 countries belong to it, but not Russia, Ukraine, China, or the United States. Or Turkey, or Saudi Arabia, or Iran, or Israel. Many countries that matter, I think, quite significantly in the world are not party to this court. It's almost like it's a gathering of the irrelevant. <laughs> the irrelevant may even have had backfire in terms of the ruling because had they not made that decision, Putin probably would not have gone to the occupied region in Ukraine, right? It just happened two days after. Yeah, I think also from a practical standpoint, if you believe that there's going to have to be some negotiated end to the war in Ukraine, that Russia is not going to be able to conquer all of Ukrainian territory, and that Ukraine is not going to be able to drive every last Russian out of the Donbass and out of Crimea, and in the end, someone's going to have to sit down and make a deal of some kind, as distasteful as that seems, this ruling doesn't help. It deepens the conviction, not only of Putin, but many other Russians, that the West really is all about crippling Russia, all about regime change and driving Russia into second or third rate status in the world, if not breaking up the Russian Federation altogether. That's not a helpful perception for us to be stoking if in the end we're going to have to sit down and come to some sort of understanding. If you look at where Putin has been, he sees himself surrounded by the West and the West gaining momentum. And this becomes almost a fight for national survival in a way that I think none of us can fully appreciate. But it leads to the notion that the challenge you've got is for him to now back down, let's say to go to the status quo ante, say he'd accept the lines that existed before the war started. And for the Ukrainians to back down and say, okay, they're not going to be able to liberate all of eastern Ukraine. That is a long way emotionally from where people seem to be right now. Maybe there's something I'm missing here. Now, I'm open to you two educating me. The more the Ukrainians think about it, the more they want the whole country back, including Crimea. The more Putin looks at it, he's got to have something. It's not like you lose the election in Russia. It's like you lose your life if you're Putin. Dean Acheson, former U.S. Secretary of State, in his memoirs talked about that same phenomenon. He pointed out that when nations feel cornered, where their existence is threatened, they can do quite reckless things. And I think that is, in fact, what's going on with Russia right now. It's hard for Americans to appreciate that. The war looks much different from our perspective, and it looks much different from Ukraine's perspective. But from Russia's perspective, they believe that they're being cornered and that Russia's survival is at stake. And they're willing to do things that strike us as breathtakingly risky and reckless. That's a very dangerous position for all of us to be in when you're talking about the world's two largest nuclear powers. So we need to handle this with a great degree of delicacy. When it comes to the territorial issues, I think you're absolutely right. Neither Ukraine nor Russia is willing to budge on territory right now. They've got too much at stake. And the politics domestically inside Russia and domestically inside Ukraine don't allow for a lot of flexibility right now. 
To me, what that points to is not that we throw up our hands and say, well, there's nothing to be done here. You know, they're just going to have to fight it out and let's cross our fingers that this doesn't escalate into a U.S.-Russian military confrontation. I think what it points out is that the United States needs to be far more active on another aspect of this war that is central, but has little to do with territory. And that is Ukraine's geostrategic orientation. The Russians have argued for many, many years that the possibility of Ukrainian membership in NATO is a red line for Russia, that that is simply something that no Russian government can tolerate. And the United States has responded to that by saying, you know, essentially too bad, not up for discussion. Ukraine is going to be a member of NATO, and we are not going to engage with Russia on this issue. I think that is going to have to change. You're correct. If Putin is going to reach a deal, he's going to need something significant coming out of it. And if it can't be territory, it's going to have to be something like that. Now, is that a big concession for the United States? No. Why do I say that? Because the United States has proven that we are not willing to put boots on the ground to defend Ukraine. It is simply too dangerous. It is not something that is central to American national security. And if we're not willing to put boots on the ground to defend Ukraine, why in the world are we insistent that Ukraine must be a treaty ally of the United States with an Article 5 commitment for us to come to Ukraine's defense? That is something that makes no sense. So what we need to be doing is saying to the Russians, we are in fact willing to talk about Ukraine being in NATO. That is something that we are willing to negotiate over. If we are, does that change Putin's willingness to settle in some pragmatic way in this war? I don't know, but I do know we haven't tried, and I think we ought to. That's a very good point. It also provides a justification for why Putin is unwilling to leave Ukraine without any concessions, even non-territorially, because a country in the active conflict is not permitted to join the NATO anyway, right? So the longer... <laughs> Putin drags on, the less likely that Ukraine, as it is, could become a member of NATO. I also wanted to circle back to, in terms of foreign policy, there's always a fine line, but very blurred line between deterrence and provocation, right? Anything you do, it could deter, but it could also provoke. And so like the war crime sentence, I think it's <laughs> primarily provocation. There's nothing in the deterrence that we gain out of it which actually says a lot about how careful we need to be in policymaking because anything you do, whether it's regarding China or Russia, is going to have both. And it would be wise to select policies that has more deterrence than provocation. We can just make policy as we go and hoping everything will work well or the kitchen sink model would not work either because sometimes you would trigger too much provocation and that could be counterproductive. I strongly agree with that. I think that's exactly right. The belief that the more we do to deter, the better off we are, and you can never do too much to deter, I think is false. There is an aspect of provocation. International relations theorists call this the security dilemma. When one country's strength becomes so threatening to another country that they feel compelled to take counteraction to protect their own security. And I think we have not been sufficiently sensitive to 
the security dilemma to the provocations that an expanding NATO in Europe might look like for Russia. And we have, I think, the same kind of dilemma in dealing with the Chinese. We have to make sure that we're striking a sensible balance between strength and accommodation, between diplomacy and deterrence. They need to work in complementary ways. And I think Nixon and Kissinger, to get back to where we began, understood this well. To take your whole point about being provocative with Ukraine, and that, in a sense, being a direct threat to Russia's sense of security, isn't that also true for the three Baltic states? I mean, Estonia basically is almost the suburbs of St. Petersburg. The difficulty with the Baltic states is that, on the one hand, they're very close to parts of Russia that matter a lot. They're a hop, skip, and a jump away from St. Petersburg. And if you were to put large concentrations of American military forces in the Baltic states, the Russians would find that extraordinarily concerning. On the other hand, the Baltic states are not like Ukraine in the Russian psyche. The Russians have not tended to regard the Baltic states as some sort of cultural and historic and integral parts of Russia itself. That's to some degree Russians look at the Baltic states and think, you know, that's foreign territory. These are different. They're not Slavic, you know, brethren. Ukraine is not regarded the same way. The Russians look at Ukraine, and you can argue whether they're justified in looking at it this way or not, but whether they're justified or not, they look at Ukraine and they think, that's brother territory. That's our heartland. It's where the Rus, in a sense, came from. Kiev was much richer than Moscow. Absolutely central to Russia's history and culture. There's great degrees of intermarriage. There's a shared history there. There's deep economic integration. It's an entirely different situation from Russia's point of view. And so the possibility of Ukrainian membership in NATO is just far different than the Baltics' membership in NATO. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go, like, how do I detach from my from this idea of, what do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, okay, that's mine. 
Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to mention as an aside, I was talking last week with an official from Taiwan who had a very different view than I guess I would have expected, in that they said, if you're Taiwanese right now and you're watching the Ukrainian campaign, your first reaction is not, you know, this means China won't do it. Your first reaction is, I don't want my city to resemble what I'm seeing on television. And it actually increases the desire to find a negotiated solution. Because the communist Chinese don't actually have to invade Taiwan to make it too painful to remain independent and to change the whole equation. I was very struck that from an American standpoint, we may completely misunderstand the psychological impact of the Ukraine campaign on the people of Taiwan and the political elites of Taiwan. I just share that because this was a very serious person and they were very worried and said, there's going to be a lot bigger interest in finding a negotiated relationship after they look at what's happened in Ukraine. I would say that's very interesting, Mr. Speaker. I would hypothesize that it's because people have short memory of history. Seeing what Ukraine looks like currently on television is very impressive. But Taiwan actually tried that, tried a friendly relationship with China. It's up to about mid-2000s. Under Kuomintang was basically very friendly with mainland. What happened back then was the Taiwanese people quickly realized as the economy grew, the people become wealthier and they wanted more freedom and they wanted less and less of interference from mainland. And the Chinese influence in Taiwan is very subtle. It's not explicit. It's nevertheless trying to make Taiwan less free during that time period. That's what led to the rise of the opposition party, the Green Party, that became more pro-independence to this day, right? And that's what actually drove Taiwan to what it is now. It's harder to make them realize the alternative is something that you have tried before, and it did not work. And it will be less and less likely to work going forward, given the current Chinese administration is very different from 
the Jiang Zemin era, which is more open to engagement. It's now much more totalitarian. I was just going to point out the Taiwanese are not only looking at what's going on in Ukraine. They have to be looking at what has happened in Hong Kong, too. That, I think, presents a much different picture for them. Both futures are bleak. What they've got to do is figure out a way to have an independent future without a war. Caving into Beijing would be horrible. On the other hand, having Beijing decide to destroy Taiwan would be horrible. So it's a balancing act there. I think it's very clever that Xi Jinping is going to Moscow to try to negotiate a peace. I mean, if you think about it, it's probably the best possible position for him to appear in. The fact is that they did seem to create a shocking relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And I think nobody expected it. I don't know of anybody in Washington who thought it was even possible. To what extent do you see Xi Jinping and his system consciously and effectively beginning to be a mediator of situations where the United States has either failed or isn't even engaged? I would actually argue that the peacemaking effort Xi Jinping now is exerting is really just the way he balanced the two considerations. One being, it doesn't want Russia to fail, but then you can't really help Russia that much. And so that maybe you find a middle ground, the status quo. The Chinese are so used to it to offer some sort of a status quo. Everybody stopped and think of what it is now as the map going forward. And I think that avoids the problem of having to help Russia. It avoids the problem of Russia losing. So that's what I think is the compromise that Beijing likes to see, although obviously nobody's interested in taking that deal. I agree. I think this is actually quite wise of China to try to position itself as peacemaker here, in part because it allows them to contrast their position to that of the United States and portray the United States as the obstacle to a settlement here, as a country that actually wants this war to continue. They've actually created a situation in which the United States has come out against a potential ceasefire in Ukraine. Now, is that going to change American positions on the war? No. Is it likely to produce some sort of surprise agreement between Russia and Ukraine anytime soon? No. But will it advance China's standing with the global south, with what you might call the swing states in the world, as opposed to Europe and the West? I would argue yes. When you look at the big chess game, that's underway right now. It's a brilliant move on the part of Beijing and one that I think the United States should rethink its own position on this. I don't think it's in our interest for a situation to evolve where China is talking to both Ukraine and Russia about a potential settlement and the United States is perceived as sitting on the sidelines playing spoiler. I think the United States ought to engage itself diplomatically on this war, trying to steer things toward a settlement, both because I think it's in the U.S. interest to do so and because it erodes China's ability to portray itself in this light. That's a very good point, George, because if we think about China's foreign relations during COVID, the lockdown basically is non-existent for three years. right? So now when it reopens, it's going to crave for some international engagement because sometimes that's used to justify the internal authority is to look at the Chinese president is shaking hands with the other world leaders. And so 
I think of it as like somebody who's a meat lover who's going on a vegetarian diet for three months and then all of a sudden all the dishes open up and they're going to grab the meat they like the most. And the easiest target, like George said, is the global south, fellow autocracies like Russia, and targets that are easier to resume some engagement. With the U.S., the barrier is much higher. What I think both of you have pointed out is we need a much more historically aware and much more subtle diplomatic capability and much more nuanced strategic planning than anything we're currently getting. This is not just a comment on the current administration, but in general, the American model has been so shaped by World War I and World War II that we're pretty good at designing Cold Wars, but we're not necessarily very good at managing the complexity of avoiding a Cold War. And I gather both of you have that sort of critique in mind. The economic analogy would be what the great economist Thomas Sowell said, uh, there's no solution, there's only trade-offs, right? But if we have the Cold War mentality, it's easier, the trade-off is easier. You just go full-blown containment because there's not much economic consequence to think about. But it's the full-blown containment of China is not going to work because too much is at stake. We really have to weigh all the benefits against the cost and find the best path forward. And deliberating is hard <laughs> because it's not straightforward. And I guess it's too cool for this town. I agree with that. And I would add that during what you might call the unipolar era, after the fall of the Berlin Wall past 30 some years, the United States was the world's hegemon. We had no peer or even near peer rivals in the world. The United States didn't have to engage in traditional give and take diplomacy. We could ultimately tell a lot of countries, look, this is what you're going to do. And if you don't like it, too bad, because we can coerce you into doing it. And I think our diplomatic muscles atrophied during that time. We, to some degree, grew unfamiliar with traditional diplomacy, where you're going to have to find some compromises, some give and take to back your diplomatic positions, yes, with military strength, yes, with economic leverage, but to do so in a way that was not simply coercive. And that's something the United States has to relearn, I think, in this new multipolar world. I want to thank you both. I think this has been a fascinating conversation and certainly has evolved in several ways I would not have necessarily guessed when we started. And I really appreciate your helping us not just understand China and Russia, Ukraine, but also this whole need for a global process of rethinking and reacquiring the capability for long-term strategic planning and for being able to operate with diplomatic subtlety. So I'm very grateful to both of you for taking this time to help educate all of us about topics where you are both such experts. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you to my guests, George Bibi and Weifeng Zhang. You can learn more about the meeting between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Slum. Our producer is Rebecca Howe, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newtsworld, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns 
at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality starting May 8th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.